You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 19 through the end of verse 35 together, and then we will pray before we begin looking at our text. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, And he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's bow together as we pray. Our Father, it is with great dependence upon You and Your Spirit and Your Word that we come to You this morning. We cannot hope to understand rightly anything that is in Your Word apart from the ministry of Your Spirit. And so we pray that He would be our teacher today. We pray that You would instruct us in truth and open our eyes and illumine our hearts and grant us that discernment and understanding that is necessary to rightly apprehend biblical spiritual truth. We pray that our focus and our thoughts may be upon Christ and that you would instruct us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these last couple of weeks, we have been talking a lot about John the Baptist and focusing on him. The irony of it is, is that even though we've been focusing on John the Baptist, we have found ourselves looking an awful lot at Christ. Because our focus on John the Baptist has only really served to divert our attention to Jesus, the one whom he came to bear witness to. And so even though our attention has been on John, we have found ourselves talking a lot about Jesus, and rightly so, because that's what John came to do. He came as a witness to testify about the light and to bear witness to the light. He was not the light himself. He was not the Messiah or the Christ, but he rather came to bear witness to Christ. And so we are continuing our look at John the Baptist this morning. He, by the very nature of his office and his function and what God had given him to do, would have drawn a lot of attention to himself. Do you realize that? He came at a time when messianic expectations were at a fever pitch. Orthodox Jews were looking at Daniel chapter 9 and saying, hey, the time for Messiah the Prince to come and be cut off has arrived. We can do the math. We can, 
we can see from the timeline that's laid out in Daniel 9 that somebody should be stepping onto the scene. And so the Orthodox Jews were expecting their Messiah to come. And of course, under the oppressive hand of Rome, everybody expected that Messianic deliverer who would come and deliver the nation politically from Roman oppression. And so Messianic expectations were at a fever pitch. And in the midst of that comes one who claimed to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, who was to come on the scene right before the appearance of the glory of God. And this one begins to proclaim, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so people would begin to go, and they did go out to see John in droves. And he was baptizing and he had a very public ministry, very public preaching. He was the talk around town. He garnered a lot of attention from the people. And when the people came to him, John did what John came to do, which was to point to Jesus every time. And his ministry didn't slip under the radar of the religious leaders of the day. He had said some scathing things against Pharisees and Sadducees, and they sent some people out to question him. And John did to them what he did to the rest of the people, and that is to point them to Jesus, always away from himself to the Son of God. And two weeks ago, I gave you an outline that would sort of frame this section that we're dealing with with John the Baptist. And it had basically three points. In verses 19 through 23, we looked at the identity of John the Baptist, where the question was, who are you? That's really what they wanted to know. Who, who do you claim to be? What do you have to say about yourself? Then the second section was verses 24 through 28, which we're going to look at today. And there, the question concerns his ministry. Why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ, you're not Elijah, why are you doing what you're doing? What warrant do you have? What reason can you give? What authority can you offer for having the ministry that you have? And then the third section was John's testimony in verses 29 through verse 35, where John bears witness verbally to who Jesus is. Now, by the way, you can tell a lot about a man by answering those three questions, can't you? What do you have to say about yourself? What ministry are you involved in? In other words, what do you consider to be important? And what do you say about Jesus? Those answer to those three questions will tell you a lot about somebody. What do you have to say about yourself? What are you doing for the Lord? And what do you have to say about Jesus? Tell me who you think you are and tell me who you think Jesus is. And I can tell you a lot about you. Isn't that the truth? It is. Well, that was what concerned the Pharisees who sent out to him uh, priests and Levites in verses 19 to 23. We finished that up last week. They questioned him along four lines. Who are you? Now, the gist of the question was, are you the Christ? To which John said, I'm not the Christ. If you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? That was the next logical thing. I'm not. If you're not Christ and you're not Elijah, then are you the prophet? No. Then who are you? Tell us who you are. What do you have to say about yourself? Give us something to take back to the Pharisees. John said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet had said. That is his identity. He is the voice that Isaiah prophesied would come to pass, that would come into the barren wilderness of the nation of Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. Now we turn our attention and we focus on John's ministry. The same group of people now question John, not about who he is, but about what he is doing. And you can see the question in verse 24, or sorry, verse 25. They asked him and said to him, why then if you're baptizing, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he 
who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then verse 28. Verse 28 is just sort of John, that is the author's note, as to where this took place and the environment in which he did this. These things took place beyond the Jordan in Bethany where John was baptizing. Now let me just make a note of verse 28. And this is, since it's just sort of a historical note, I'm just going to give it some passing reference. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. There were two Bethanies in John's day, in Jesus' day. There was a Bethany near Jerusalem on the west side of the Jordan River. There was a Bethany outside of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. So you had to go across the Jordan River to get to the other Bethany. The second Bethany, the one on the other side of the Jordan River, has been lost to us and to history. Nobody knows where that Bethany was. But there was a Bethany which was on the other side of the Jordan, which is why John says this thing, these things took place in the Bethany beyond the Jordan. It wasn't in the Bethany near Jerusalem. Now, why do I point this out? Because if you're reading the King James or the New King James, you'll notice that it's not translated Bethany. It's translated Beth... I wrote it down. Bethabara. Bethabara. Not Bethany. Well, what happened there? What is it Bethany or Bethabara? Here's what happened. The King James was translated. And this is just a note for those of you who enjoy this type of stuff. The King James was translated from later manuscripts, not the earliest manuscripts, but the Textus Receptus group of manuscripts. After 300 A.D., about the time of 300 A.D., after the Bethany beyond the Jordan had been lost to history, nobody knew where its identity was, there was scribes mostly circulating around Origen, one of the early church fathers, who identified the Bethany beyond the Jordan with a town called Bethabara. And Bethabara was where they thought that ancient Bethany was, and so they simply changed the name in some of the later manuscripts or put a note that this was Bethabara, which current to them, they thought was the ancient Bethany, which was beyond the Jordan. So that's why the different city name. Earliest manuscripts, best manuscripts, it's Bethany. It's the Bethany. There was two cities named Bethany. This is the Bethany that was on the other side of the Jordan. That's where these things took place. So that's your historical note from verse 28. Let's jump back up to verse 24, and we'll look at the question that they ask him, and it's a significant question. Now, verse 24 presents us with a little bit of an interpretive challenge. And I have to bring this out because I may have said something a couple weeks ago that was wrong. And if it's wrong, I want to make sure I correct this. Verse 24 reads in the NASB, they had been sent from the Pharisees. There are three different ways that we could take that phrase from the Greek. They had been sent from the Pharisees. The first is the way that the NASB translated, they had been sent from the Pharisees, referencing the priests and the Levites back in chapter 1, verse 19. They sent priests and Levites out to John where he was baptizing to question him. Verse 24 then is sort of taken as a, the note as to who did the sending. It was the Pharisees in Jerusalem that sent the priests and the Levites out. There's a second way of taking it. The NIV translates that phrase, now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. That means that among the priests and the Levites, there were some Pharisees there. So the the NIV understanding would be the priests and the Levites asked him, who are you? And when John answered those questions, that wasn't enough for some of the Pharisees who had been sent. Having heard the answer to what John said to who are you, some of the Pharisees among that delegation then asked John, why then are you baptizing? There's a third way of understanding, and this is the way that I think makes most sense of the context, and that is that this group of priests and Levites who came out were all Pharisees. So they weren't sent Levites and priests from the Pharisees. In those days, there were two sects, two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't talk much to each other. They didn't like each other at all because they were on opposite ends of almost every issue. The Pharisees were theological conservatives. 
They believed in the afterlife. They believed in angels and in spirits. They believed in eternal life. They believed in the supernatural. Sadducees denied all of those things. Denied the existence of angels. They were the theological liberals of the day. And they didn't talk to each other much. And among the Sanhedrin, among the ruling elite in Jerusalem, there were these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. The priests and the Levites were made up mostly of Sadducees, though not exclusively. And I think what John is saying here is that those who came out to to question John, they were of the Pharisees. They were not only sent by the Pharisees, but this delegation was entirely Pharisaical. Now, I mention that because I may have said a couple of weeks ago that the priests and the Levites were Sadducees sent by the Pharisees. But see, listen, the Pharisees would never have sent Sadducees out to do their dirty work to question them on a theological issue. Why would you do that? That would be like me grabbing some liberal mainline uh, pastor here in town and saying, look, go quiz this guy about what his theology is. I would never do that. I would never trust that to somebody that I disagree with as a polar opposite. I would go do the work myself. And I think that that's what's going on here. I don't know if I said that or not, but it was certainly in my mind, and I had two options. I could either come up here and correct it, as I just have, or I could listen to myself preach and see what I heard myself say, and I can't endure the pain of listening to me preach, and so I'm just simply offering that to you. Verse 24 says that they, I believe, says that they were all Pharisees. Look, this would explain a lot. This would explain why they sent the delegation out to begin with. Do you think a Sadducee would care why John was baptizing? Do you think a Sadducee would care who John is? They wouldn't care. Who is this guy? We don't care. We've got bigger fish to fry than this. We don't care if he thinks he's the Christ, if he thinks he's Elijah. We don't believe in either one of them. We don't care what he's doing or why he's doing it. The Pharisees would care, but the Sadducees wouldn't care. Sadducees would have said, doctrine, schmockrin. Who cares about doctrine? We're not interested in any of that. They were more interested in other things. This would also explain why John quotes Isaiah 40 to them. The Sadducees didn't recognize any of the prophets. They only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament. The books written by Moses. Everything else to them, they disregarded. So John quotes from Isaiah because these guys who were Pharisees would recognize Isaiah and respect Isaiah and listen to them. It also explains why they ask him about baptism. Because you remember the Pharisees? They were nitpickers and they were all caught up in the minutia of rituals and liturgy and rites and ceremonies and all of that stuff. That's why they're concerned. Why then are you baptizing and by whose authority do you baptize if you're not the Christ, the prophet or Elijah? Does that make sense? So it was the Pharisees who came out, this delegation, to quiz John. Now we're going to have all kinds of opportunity to find out about the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of John because they are the chief opponents of the Lord Jesus from the beginning all the way to the end. So we're going to look at them and their doctrines in more detail later on, but I just want to give you a a thumbnail sketch of what a Pharisee was. The word Pharisee meant to separate or to be separated. So these guys had had they existed from about the second century BC, and to be a Pharisee meant to be separate, at arm's length from anything that they determined or decided was unclean or impure or wrong or any sort of loose interpretation of the law. They were so strict in their adherence to the Old Testament law, so strict in their adherence to the ceremonies, and a strict interpretation to the Old Testament law, that they had become nitpicky with it, and they had added all kinds of of traditions and doctrines of men and ideas and lists of rules and regulations about how to keep this. It wasn't just a matter of observing the Sabbath and seeing what the Old Testament law said about the Sabbath. They heaped all kinds of stuff on top of it about you can travel this far and you can lift this much and you can do this and you can can comb your hair, but not so much on the Sabbath. They had all kinds of regulations because they had become so tied up in all the minutia of it. 
And they were considered the orthodox party among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, you got two to choose from, theological liberals, theological conservatives. And most of the people went with the theological conservatives. The ruling elite were the theological liberals. So the Pharisees were sort of seen as the party of the people, but they kept themselves separated from the people, separated from anything unclean or impure, or any sort of loose practice of the law or any loose interpretation of the law. Very strict, very strict. They say, what's wrong with theological orthodoxy, doctrinal orthodoxy? Do you think that I think there's anything wrong with doctrinal orthodoxy? No, I value doctrinal orthodoxy. But what the Pharisees had done was taken doctrinal orthodoxy and added to it all of the commandments of men and made that their orthodoxy. And not only their orthodoxy, but they had made adherence to all of their man-made traditions and religions and ceremonies the test of orthodoxy and the test of one's righteousness. And they began to pride themselves on their own self-righteousness and whether you were as good or as righteous in conduct as a Pharisee was. So this is the group that comes out to question John concerning who he is and so or what he and what he is doing. So then look at the question that they ask him. Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And this is a significant question. It's a key question. And there are two issues that we want to sort of split out and deal with. The first question is really what is behind the first issue is what is behind their question. And that is. By what authority do you baptize? That's really what they're getting at. Why do you baptize? By what authority do you baptize? What warrant can you give if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet? Tell us then why you're baptizing. The second issue that we want to deal with, and this is one that would be obvious to anybody who was here and anybody in the first century who read this, but it's not as obvious to us, and that is the, this issue. What was John's baptism all about? You ever wonder that? See, I know what Christian baptism is about. I know what believer's baptism is about. I know why we baptize believers. I know what the symbolism of it is. and I know why we do immersion and what that is intended to portray. And I understand what the New Testament talks about believers being baptized and, and what that's about. Do you ever ask yourself, what was John on about? What was John's baptism about? What did it mean? What was its significance? Because this predates the cross by three or four years. John's baptism does. So... What is John? Why is John baptizing and what was the purpose of his baptism? So let's deal with that. Why was John baptizing? This I found was fascinating because I didn't know this. Baptism, even at the time of John the Baptist, was not a new practice. It was an old practice. And it was a practice that was common amongst the Jews. Leon Morris in his commentary on the Gospel of John says this, Baptism was not a new practice in Judaism. It was the regular rite in the admission of converts from other religions. When such a conversion took place, the males of the family were circumcised and all of both sexes were baptized. This was seen as the ceremonial removal of all the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. End quote. In other words, it was a rite that was associated with proselytism from paganism or the Gentile world into Judaism. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew and enter into the covenant with the God of the Jews, you had to be circumcised and then the Jews required you to be baptized. And you were baptized because it symbolized your cleansing from all of the pollutions that you contracted by being in the Gentile world. All of your years spent in the flesh. All of your years out in among pagans. 
And so to them it was a rite of cleansing. And they did this to only to Gentiles who became Jews through proselytism. The males were circumcised and then everybody was baptized. And here's the interesting thing about that baptism. It was self-administered. You baptize yourself in a ceremony, but it was self-administered. John's baptism seems to be different. It seems from the text that John was doing the baptizing, that he was administering the baptizing of those who came to him. So it was an, an older practice. And based upon two Old Testament texts, one in Ezekiel and one in Zechariah, the Jews believed that baptism, a lot of baptism, would be taking place around the dawn of the Messianic age. There were two passages that they quoted. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. You know the references to, notice the references to water? Texts have nothing at all to do with baptism. Not a thing to do with baptism whatsoever. But the Jews read that and they said, Look, we believe that in conjunction with the dawn of the Messianic age, either the Messiah or one of his... Um, one of his emissaries, his ambassadors, will do a lot of baptizing among the pagans and among the Gentiles for cleansing and for spiritual impurity and purity. So they thought baptism would come in ushering with this Gentile age. Now listen, here's the rub. Who was John baptizing? Jews. Jews. Now, think of it for just a second from the perspective of a Jew. Baptism is associated with these unclean Gentiles who are coming into Judaism. And we require them to be circumcised and we require them to be baptized because they're unclean and they are polluted and they're defiled by the world and all of their Gentileness. But to suggest that a Jew would identify himself with a Gentile and be baptized like a common Gentile dog. Almost unthinkable to a Jewish mind. And so you had John out there saying, look, you need to repent of your sin and be baptized. And the Jews were coming to him and they were being baptized by John in a baptism of repentance. And when somebody came to John to be baptized, they were in essence saying, look, I understand and I admit that my Jewishness gains me no standing or, uh, or any advantage with the Messiah. And I admit that my sins have placed me outside of God's saving covenant. And my sins have placed me in a hard way. And that I am separated from my God and separated from my Messiah because of my sin. And that I am no better spiritually than a Gentile dog. I am the worst of sinners and I am turning from my sin to prepare myself for the coming Messiah. That was what somebody who came to John to be baptized would have to be confessing. That is why in Matthew chapter 3 it says that John baptized while the people confess their sin. And John himself says, I baptize you with a baptism for repentance. And the Jews in their mind would be thinking, hold on a second, we're not outside the people of God. We are the people of God. We were born into the covenant. We have this by right. We're children of Abraham. We don't need to repent. We don't need to be brought into a right relationship with God. We're in a right relationship with God by virtue of our birth. So we are already ready for the Messiah. John was saying, you're not ready. You need to repent. You're just like a Gentile. Repent of your sin, and then I will baptize you. And they did, and he did. And that was offensive to the Jewish religious leaders. That was offensive to all of the Jews who heard John's message, except for those who humbled themselves and repented of their sins and turned to 
their Messiah and was making themselves ready for the Messiah. So that was the rub with John's baptism, which I think got all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody sort of up in arms over John baptizing to begin with, because this was something that was associated strictly with Gentiles. So if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and some of your minds are already going here, wasn't Jesus baptized by John? He was, right? So if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for people who are outside the covenant, to who are separated from their God because of their sin, if his baptism was a baptism to get them to repent and turn from their sin, and prepare their hearts for the Messiah, why then was Jesus, the pure, undefiled, sinless Son of God, baptized by John? That's a good question, isn't it? And it's one we should answer at some point. We're not going to do it today because later on, between verses 25 and 29, sorry, 29 and 35, John makes reference to Jesus' baptism. So if I remember... We will pick it up then and deal with that. Why was Jesus baptized by John? So let's move on now to the second issue. The first, what was John's baptism all about? The second issue, which is really behind their question, why are you baptizing? I want you to remember the messianic implications behind their question. They are assuming that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah or one of his ambassadors, one of his predecessors, somebody associated with the messianic coming, is going to come and he's going to be doing a lot of baptizing. So then you have John showing up in the wilderness. That makes the people realize, or at least the Pharisees think, okay, our expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he or somebody he appoints is going to be doing baptism. John is out doing baptism. Let's go out and find out who this guy's on about or what he's on about. So they go out into the wilderness and they ask him, are you the Christ? No. Okay, so not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No. Prophet? No. Then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why are you doing the work that they should be doing? Why are you taking that ministry away from them? And by what authority, by whose commission do you baptize? And I love John's answer because John does hear what he does all the way through this whole passage. And that is to take their focus right off of him and put it on Christ. I baptize you with water. But listen, there is one standing among you whom you do not know. He, though He comes after me, is of a higher rank than I, and I am not worthy to untie His sandals. I love that answer. Right off of the emphasis on John and His baptism and His ministry and His warrant and His authority, and John basically is pointing to Christ and saying, you want to know by whose authority I do this? The One who stands among you. I only baptize you with water. And there's an emphasis there. It's emphatic. I, I baptize you with water. And you almost, in English, expect the rest of that phrase, which we get in the other Gospels, but there's one among you who's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. That's the rest of that phrase. John doesn't record it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do. They all record Jesus, or John saying that of Jesus. I'm merely baptizing you with water. And my baptism should not even be your concern. You know what your concern should be? Not who I am, and not why I'm baptizing, not by whose authority I do this. Your ultimate concern should be this. There is one who is standing among you whom you do not know. Boy, that is chilling. That is chilling. There is one who, whose authority and whose greatness and whose value is so great, and he, and it's in the perfect tense, stands, has been standing for quite some time among you. And it's not that Jesus was right there then in the crowd. 
And it's not that they looked around and said, well, which one of which one of us is it? It's not until the next day, verse 29, that John sees Jesus coming toward him and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wasn't there at this point. But John is saying, look, there's one who has been living among us and among you in this land. He is the one who is to come. He is the Christ. I'm bearing witness to him. And you don't know him. You don't know him. There's, there's two implications to that. There's two ways in which that was true. First, they did not know the Messiah by sight. Jesus came in the form of a man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, looked very much like a man, just an ordinary Jewish man. Had they bumped into him in the temple, bumped into him in the marketplace or the street, they wouldn't have said, oh, you must be the Messiah. Well, nice to meet you. There was nothing about him that would draw attention to himself. He was just an ordinary looking Jewish man. And they would not have been able to pick him out of a crowd or out of a lineup. They did not know who he was because he had not yet been revealed. But second, John's words imply that their knowledge of him was not just by sight, but they didn't know who their true real Messiah was. They were expecting the Messiah to come in the clouds in glory and victory and to establish and set up a literal earthly kingdom right then and there to deliver them from the power of Rome. What they did not know was the Messiah who would come and suffer, who would be meek, who would be a servant, who would be humble, who would be born of a virgin in a stable, among animals. Him they did not know. They knew the Messiah who would rule and reign from the throne of David, What they didn't know was the Messiah who would come to be cut off, to die on a cross, to become a curse for you and for I and for them. That Messiah they did not know. This is kind of a chilling statement, is it not? It's also very insulting. I mean, these guys were the religious watchdogs of the nation, right? Experts in the law. These are the teachers of the people. And John has the audacity to say, look, the one you say you're looking for, the one you say you're waiting for, he's among you. He's right under your noses, and you don't know any better. You don't even know who it is. And he's been walking around here, and you've missed it. You've missed it. Him you do not know. The issue, by the way, of the nation not knowing their Messiah when he came is a theme that's woven all the way through the Gospel of John. I wish I'd got the verses together for this morning, but you remember chapter 1, verse 10, he came into the world, the world did not know him, his own did not know him. They didn't know Him. They didn't recognize Him for who He was. They didn't come into a right relationship with Him. Later on, Jesus will say to the Pharisees, I think it's in chapter 5, You have not known either Me or My Father. And then He condemns the religious leaders, I think it's in chapter 8, saying, You don't know the Father, nor do you know Me. They were totally ignorant and they refused to know Him rightly. And so John says, There's one among you whom you do not know. You don't know Him by sight. You don't know what His true purpose is. You have no knowledge of Him whatsoever. And yet you are the people who are supposed to know those things. And yet you don't know them, but I know. And then look what John says. He, though he came after me, is of greater value than I am. I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal strap. There's two two things in that statement that are worth noting. First is the value and the worth of Christ himself. If those words sound familiar, it's because back in verse 15 of chapter 1, do you remember we saw it back there where John says in verse 15, this is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Because he existed before me, he is higher than I. And yet John says, though he came after me here in this passage, but here the idea is that of precedence, that of of one following the other. Though Jesus did come in time after me, he started his ministry after me, 
He was born after me. He's higher than I, and He's greater than I, and His value is infinitely greater than I, because I'm not worthy to unloose His sandal strap. That is the value of Christ. Back in John's day, there was a teaching among the Pharisees, and the priests and the Levites who were there asking John about this would have, would have known this. There was a teaching among the Pharisees that those who taught the Word, taught the Law, and taught the Old Testament, could not be paid for teaching what they taught. Now, this was not a biblical idea. This was something handed down through man's tradition and man's way of doing things, and it was one of those legalistic, pharisaical ideas. They didn't get it from the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, Paul argues from the Old Testament to say that a worker is worthy of his hire, and those who preach the gospel should live off the gospel. And then he quotes the passage about not muzzling the ox while he threads out the, the uh, whatever he threads out, the grain. Not to muzzle the ox while he threshes out the grain. So this is not an Old Testament idea, but it was one that was all attached to the Pharisees and their whole way of doing things, one of those man-made traditions. So among the Pharisees, they didn't allow the Pharisees or those who taught the Word to receive any compensation for it, but they had a little way of getting around all of their little laws and their regulations. All of their disciples and their students were allowed to do all kinds of acts of service for the Pharisees. So you couldn't give them money to go buy dinner, but you could make them dinner and have them over and they could eat for free. So you had to just get around that little... Get around the, the whole little law that you put in place. That's what they did. And there was one thing that no student was ever allowed to do for his rabbi. There was one task that was so menial, so low, so despicable, so lowly, so humble, so dirty, so unclean, so horrible, that no rabbi was ever allowed to ask his disciple or a student to do this for him. And he was never allowed to allow his disciple or his student to do this for him. And guess what it was? Loosening the sandal strap. Now, in our culture, we don't have any problem with helping people take their shoes off, do we? We have a hard time even understanding that's lowly. That's a lowly act of service. That's nothing. You know, well, ladies, your husband comes home and he's tired. And, of course, he kicks his feet up and you serve him dinner. And then you take his shoes off for him and rub his feet. You do all that great stuff. We don't even think anything of of that lowly act of service. But in that culture, it was the lowest possible thing and only the lowest and the worst and the humblest and the most menial slave was allowed to do that task. And here is John saying, I am not worthy to untie his sandal strap. That is how infinitely valuable and how infinitely exalted and how infinitely worthy he is compared to me. So you notice the value of Christ mentioned there, but notice John's humility. Listen, If John is the greatest man ever born of a woman, the greatest prophet that ever lived, which Jesus said he was, and he is not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal strap, what does that say about you and I? Wowza. Right? How do you get this type of humility? How do you get this type of perspective on yourself and your life and your value? Is it by sitting back and thinking about myself and saying, you know, I'm a horrible individual. I'm just so lowly. I'm just so despicable. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a wretch. I'm such a worm. I'm just going to think about myself. Is, it, is this type of humility gained through introspection and focusing on yourself? It's not. It's not at all. You know how it's gained? By focusing on the one who is of infinite value and worth. It is when John is able to see Jesus for who he is that he understands who he is. It is pride to sit back and say, I'm such a wretch, I'm such a worm, I'm such a this, I'm so humble, I'm so lowly. It is a twisted form of pride that is the result of focusing on us 
It's very me-centered, very me-focused. You're looking at me and coming to a conclusion that I'm such a wretch. It's like I feel good about how bad I feel about myself. It's a twisted form of pride and it's very subtle. But true humility is not gained by focusing on myself, but by focusing on Christ and realizing I am not worthy to perform even the lowliest act of service for that king. Even the lowliest act of service. Are you really worthy? Am I really worthy of anything that we do for the Lord? Anything at all? Truth be told, we're not worthy to untie the sandal strap from John the Baptist's foot, let alone the Lord Jesus' foot. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every act of service that you have ever performed has been tainted in some way because it came from you. Everything I have ever done has been tainted in some way because it comes from me. You cannot pour pure water out of a twisted cistern, out of a polluted cistern. So everything we have done, and even our best prayer, is polluted with the sulfur of our own sin. So that nothing that we do is really worthy of anything for the Lord. Nothing at all. That is what makes us such wretches. That's what makes us so unworthy. That's why you and I can say, we're not worthy to unloose His sandal strap, let alone teach His Word. Let alone teach a Sunday school class. Let alone share the Gospel. Let alone serve one another or anything else that we do that are a thousand times greater than unloosening sandal straps. If we're not worthy of the lowliest, we're certainly not worthy of the greatest, are we? And we're not. Why is that? Because of the One whom we serve. But listen, are you not glad and are you not thankful that your acceptance with God is not determined by your worthiness? You know what it is? Secured by? Not your worthiness, but His worthiness. Because He is of such infinite value and He is of such infinite worth. What He did on the cross makes me accepted in the Beloved. And I never have to fear not being accepted by Christ and never being accepted by God. I don't have to fear that because of His worth and His value. And then on top of that, He gives you and I the privilege of not only serving in capacities which are greater than loosening sandal straps, but the privilege of serving in that capacity. And then He gives us the gifts to do it. And He gives us the strength to endure it. And He gives us the opportunity. And then He gives us the reward for glory. Isn't that phenomenal? And you know what you and I say? We say the same thing that the hymn writer says. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my soul, that His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from His reward? We have no answer for that, do we? Because He is of such infinite value and such infinite worth. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for the privilege that it is to be called Your children, to be called sons of God, to be given that right to become children of God. We thank You for the glory of Your your name, the glory of Your grace, the glory of the Gospel which makes us accepted in the Beloved. We thank You, God, that You have called us miserable wretches to serve You Help us then to do so with diligence. Help us to do so with passion. And we pray, O God, that we may constantly and always point to Christ and remind ourselves of His his infinite value and worth. We thank You in His rich and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.